So this is kind of strange. In 2004, Scott Peterson was found guilty of killing his pregnant wife Lacey Peterson. But despite this, there is still a debate about whether he is actually guilty or not. Weird, right? Or maybe not. What do you think? Kind of strange? Or not at all? Hello, and welcome to Kind of Strange. I'm your host, Grace, and this is a place where you can get cozy, a little creeped out, and talk with me about things that are weird, unusual, spooky, and kind of strange. Welcome back to Kind of Strange. This is part two about the murder of Lacey Peterson and about Scott Peterson, who was convicted of murdering her as well as their unborn son, Connor. In this episode, I'm going to be going over everything that makes Scott Peterson look guilty. I do encourage you to listen to part one. That's some background about the case as well as Lacey and Scott. But if you don't want to listen to that, I do encourage you to listen to part three, which is going to be all of the quote-unquote evidence and theories people have that make it look like Scott Peterson is innocent. I want to reiterate again that I really don't stand on one side or the other. At the end of part three, I'll let you know after all this research I've done which side I guess I lean towards more. But I think the reason for this is that this is just such a mysterious case, and a lot of the evidence is circumstantial, and I've noticed while researching it that the Scott Peterson case, people can get really up in arms whether they believe that he is guilty or not. There's really strong and adamant opinions out there, and again, he was convicted, and he is still in jail today. There was an appeal, I believe it was around this time last year, at least that's when I first heard about it, but it was recently where they were trying to get Scott Peterson a new trial based on jury misconduct, but I will get into that probably in part three. But let's just get into this because there's a lot of information here. There's so much information, which I said in part one, about this case, and I'm going to try to include as much as possible while also trying to weed through some of the things that just aren't true, but I'm sure that there's going to be some things that I miss. So let's get into it. I'm going to be following the timeline that Scott provided for police the day that his wife Lacey was reported missing. And as we go along, I'm just going to be interjecting other things, other evidence that came up during the time after Lacey disappeared. First, I saw a statistic that said the number one cause of death for pregnant women is homicide and two-thirds of their murders are at the hands of their partners or former partners. So the fact that Scott was found guilty of this would not be uncommon. He's actually the first person, the first suspect that police and investigators would look at in a case like this, so it's not unusual at all, sadly. And secondly, Lacey Peterson supposedly went missing on December 24th. That is when she was reported missing by Scott as well as Lacey's parents. And the prosecution believes that she was killed during the late hours of December 23rd or early hours of December 24th. I believe they may have changed their exact timing of when they thought she was killed during the trial, which is unusual, but anyways, let's get into it. 
On December 23rd, Lacey and Scott's housekeeper arrived at the house at 8.30 a.m., and Lacey went to Trader Joe's and spent around $100 buying stuff like salmon, eggs, shrimp, and soup, as well as some other things. Later that day, between 12.30 and 12.45, Lacey went to Sweet Serenity Day Spa for a waxing treatment or a facial, depending where you read. But the owner of that day spa, Michelle Bauer or Buer, testified later that Lacey was one of her few clients that never complained about her husband. I guess a lot of her clients would complain about their husbands. But she did say that Lacey did seem uncomfortable that day due to her pregnancy and she told her that she was having trouble sleeping. At 2.35 p.m., Lacey and Scott go to the Hera Medical Group for a scheduled prenatal exam, and according to Lacey's mother, Sharon, they were supposed to pre-register for delivery that day. She brings it up a couple times in her book, but I don't know if they ever actually did or not. I know that she was wondering. I'm not sure if they ever actually ended up doing that. It's probably not relevant, but let's move along. At 5.45 p.m., Scott and Lacey go to Salon Salon, where Lacey's half-sister, Amy Rocha, works. Scott goes there because he's getting a haircut from Amy. And while they're there, Lacey asks Amy if she can show her how to flip her hair with a straightener or curling iron. I believe it was actually a curling iron. So Amy's like, sure, I'll show you how to do that. And she shows Lacey how to do her hair. And while Lacey and Scott are there, Scott says to Amy, hey, you should come over after this and have pizza at our house. But Amy says that she has plans already and turns down the offer. Now, when I was reading the book that Lacey's mother, Sharon, wrote about Lacey and everything that happened, Sharon was wondering if Scott somehow already knew that Amy had plans that night and then threw out that offer as a way to make it look like, you know, they had nothing going on that night, wouldn't be a big deal to have Lacey's sister come over. But that's just an opinion that she had and something that she wondered about. So then, Amy mentions that the following day, Christmas Eve, she has to go pick up a fruit basket at a store called Vela Farms, and it's going to be a gift for their grandfather for Christmas time. And Scott says, you know, I can actually pick that up for you, basically offering to do her a favor. And he says the reason for it is he's going to be golfing on Christmas Eve day, and the golf course he's playing at is near Vela Farms. So he's like, I'll pick that up for you. And Amy's like, yeah, that would be great. So at 7 p.m., Scott and Lacey end up leaving the salon, and they had already made a call to order pizza. Lacey had called while they were still at the salon. So they leave, they go grab the pizza on the way home, and when they get home, Scott says that they ate the pizza while they watched football. At around 8.30, Lacey called her mother and said that they would be coming to dinner the next day. So her mother had been kind of asking her, hey, are you going to come over for Christmas Eve dinner? And Lacey was like, I'm not really sure yet. I'm not sure. I'll let you know. And it sounded to Sharon like she was trying to figure out if Scott could come or she had to run the idea by Scott. But she finally calls the night of December 23rd and lets her mother know that yes, they will be coming over. And then she talks with her about the appointment she had that day. And she said everything was going well. And that was the last time that Sharon ever spoke to her daughter. So next, Scott says that they continued to watch football and then they watch the movie The Rookie. Scott said that he went to bed, and Lacey as well, at around 10.30 p.m., and before they went to bed, Lacey changed into his blue pajama bottoms, because at this point in her pregnancy, it was common for her to wear those or wear his pajamas because it was more comfortable for her. Scott says that the next morning, he thinks Lacey woke up around 7 in the morning, 
and put the pajama bottoms into the hamper. And I'm bringing that up because they were found there during a search of the house on the day after Christmas. And there is a lot of focus on the clothes Lacey was wearing when she went missing. So when she was at the salon that her sister worked at, her sister Amy remembered that Lacey was wearing a black top with cream-colored polka dots or sometimes described as really small cream-colored flowers. She was also wearing cream-colored pants, a black jacket, and a cream-colored scarf. And another hairstylist that was there said that they remembered Lacey wearing something similar as well and mentioned that Lacey seemed tired that day, although Amy said that Lacey seemed like her usual self. So yeah, again, her pajama bottoms were found in the hamper, and Scott had said she had worn them the night before and probably or likely put them in the hamper the next morning. So, Scott says he didn't wake up until around 8 or 8.30, and said by that time, Lacey had already eaten breakfast, which was cereal, and she had actually bought cereal from Trader Joe's the day before, and the breakfast that she had eaten, he said, was cinnamon puffs. <laughs> but anyways, he said that she always did this to avoid getting sick. She ate first thing in the morning. So when he got up, he ended up having cereal and sitting with her while she ate some toast. And then he said that she went onto the computer and Scott went and took a shower. So as far as this computer goes, because this gets brought up a lot as a reason or as an explanation as to how Lacey had to have been alive on the morning of December 24th, because it said that the internet search was likely done by her, because the things that were searched for were an umbrella stand that had sunflowers on it, and Lacey loved sunflowers. She had one tattooed on her. There was a gap scarf that was looked at, and they believe that Scott never would have been looking up those items. But let's get into this a little bit. <laughs> so the computer was only used between 8.40 a.m. and 8.45 a.m. An MSN page was automatically opened when going onto the internet. And then from there, a Yahoo weather page is accessed to look at a five-day weather forecast for San Jose in California. After that, a Yahoo shopping site is looked at. And on that site, a red gap fleece scarf was viewed as well as a sunflower motif umbrella stand. So, just to explain, these items were not specifically searched for. It's not as if somebody went onto the computer and typed in sunflower umbrella sand and gap red scarf. They actually came up on the site kind of like an ad, and then you could click them from there if you were interested. Also, interestingly, so again, this was used as big evidence that Lacey was alive that morning looking up these items, and yes, she could have been on the computer, but it's important to note that nobody specifically typed those items in and specifically searched for them. They were just clicked on because they were shown on the website. As far as the weather search for San Jose, this one confuses me because in some places I'm reading that this points at Scott looking up the weather near Berkeley Marina. But when I did some research into this, and I live, you know, nowhere near California, so I'm not familiar with the geography there, not like to this level. And as far as that weather search, San Jose appears to be about 90 miles from Modesto, which is where Lacey and Scott lived, and over 40 miles from Berkeley, which is where Scott went fishing. So I'm not sure why this town specifically was searched for weather, but it said that the zip code for this area was typed in. So I'm unclear about that, but I just wanted to put that out there. Now finally, during this five-minute time, Another thing was accessed on the computer, and this was actually Scott's personal email account. 
So this was accessed, and it said that his email was password protected, but I could not for the life of me find out if the person that looked at the email would have had to type the password in. Because, as you know, if you're already signed into your email and you log onto your computer and that site is still up, chances are your email is still signed into. It's not, unless you have it set up that way, usually your email will remain signed into, so it could have already been up there. But an email was clicked on between Scott and Jay Shockley, and this was in regards to a golf bag that Scott was selling on eBay. But no email was sent, and the email was just viewed. So again, this was done in five minutes, and then whoever was on the computer logged off. And I just want to say, from the sounds of it, it sounds more likely that that was Scott on the computer because his email was looked at. But again, just to, you know, look, I guess, at the other side of things, it could have been Lacey. Perhaps the email was open and she just clicked it out of curiosity. And maybe she was wondering about the golf bag. Maybe she knew about it. You know, I don't know. Again, there was nothing written back. It was just clicked on and viewed. And that was that. Like I said, I think an email would stay open on a computer. But to me, if I had to choose, I would say that that was more likely to have been Scott on the computer at that time. Anyways. Scott said that Lacey told him that her plans for the day were to walk the dog, and their dog's name is Mackenzie, then she was going to go to the store and make gingerbread. And Lacey's mother at some point says that she never remembered Lacey telling her that she planned to make gingerbread, so she thinks that Scott made that up. But, I mean, she may have just not mentioned it to her mom, it might have not been something that came up in conversation. Now, the reason Lacey wanted to go to the store was because she needed to buy bread for French toast that she was planning on making for Christmas brunch. So Lacey and Scott were planning on going to Lacey's parents' home for Christmas Eve dinner, and the following day on Christmas, Lacey and Scott were planning on having, I think, her family, his family, I don't know, they were having people over their house for a Christmas brunch, and Lacey was going to be preparing for that. So again, she wanted to go buy bread for French toast because she was planning on making something called creme brulee French toast, and that recipe was found on the counter. Scott said to Sharon, Lacey's mom, when asked about, you know, what she had been doing that day, he described her getting ready in the morning, and he told her that she looked really cute that morning, and he remembered that she was sitting on a bench in front of the bathroom mirror, styling her hair the way Amy had showed her to the day before. Sharon was confused when she heard this because she had no idea what bench Scott was referring to and never remembered a bench being in the bathroom. And she mentioned it to Amy, Lacey's sister, who also found this strange because she didn't recall a bench being in the bathroom. But Scott said that it was a bench that had been dragged into the bathroom for Lacey to sit on and use while she did her hair. And in pictures taken that night by investigators after Lacey was reported missing, There was, in fact, a very small bench, I don't even know if you'd really call it a bench, that was in the bathroom, and there was a curling iron left on the counter with the plug extended towards the outlet. Not plugged in, but with that cord extended towards the outlet, making it look as if somebody had been doing their hair there. And just again, to kind of see both sides of things with this whole bench situation, I mean... You know, just because there wasn't a bench there at one point, things get moved around in people's houses all the time, and I do think that it would have made sense if Lacey was doing her hair at some point, didn't have to be December 24th, that she would have moved the bench into the bathroom in order to be more comfortable, especially where she was pregnant, and, you know, many people said that she was having uh, discomfort during her pregnancy. Now, this is important to note. The housekeeper, who had been there the previous day, December 23rd, that morning to clean the house, was asked about this whole bench hair situation, 
And she said that when she was there, there was nothing left out on the bathroom counter, so no curling iron, and there was no bench out. So, people say, oh, it must mean that Lacey moved the bench in there and then put the curling iron out on the morning of December 24th, but she could have done it when she got home from the salon. She could have done it at some point that day. You know, just because the housekeeper didn't see it the morning of December 23rd does not mean that it had to have been moved there on December 24th but it does align with Scott's story, so. Scott said that he then took three patio umbrellas from the backyard and put them into the bed of his truck because he planned to bring them with him to store at his warehouse. He was planning on stopping at his warehouse, and he said that it was starting to rain, so that's why he had moved them. And I was just thinking, you know, somebody on the computer had viewed the umbrella stand, so maybe It was one of those things where you look at that and you're like, oh, we forgot we're supposed to be moving those patio umbrellas, but it could have been either person and maybe it has nothing to do with it, (laughs) but it does seem to happen like right after that. But he does move the umbrellas into the bed of his truck and the umbrellas were still in the bed of his truck later that night when police and investigators were there and he said that he just forgot to put them away, forgot to put them in the warehouse, which, okay, I forget to take stuff out of my trunk all the time. But he had also put a toolbox in the bed of his truck, or one was in there, and later on when he's talking about his time at the warehouse, he mentions getting things out of the toolbox, which was in the bed of his truck, and he had planned to store the umbrellas at the warehouse. So he would have had to have been, at least as far as I believe, climbing over the umbrellas to get to the toolbox, so him forgetting to put the umbrellas in the warehouse is a little strange. I mean, again, it could happen, but just wanted to mention that. Now, there was also a blue tarp in his truck as well. I believe it was in his truck the night that Lacey was reported missing. Now, getting into this tarp, okay, because there's a lot of debate around it. When there was a search warrant or when police investigated his home, I believe a few days later, the tarp was no longer in the bed of his truck and it was instead inside of his shed. Now, on top of it was gasoline because there had been a leaf blower left on top of the tarp and it was leaky and it had leaked gasoline. Now, depending where you read, again, some people say the tarp was drenched in gasoline, and others say it kind of had some gasoline on it. Some people say there was fertilizer on it, but we know there was some gasoline on the tarp. Some people think this was as an effort to throw off, you know, scent dogs, cadaver dogs, from being able to smell Lacey's scent, because the prosecution believes that Lacey's body was wrapped in that tarp, and then transported to Berkeley Marina and, you know, left there. So this tarp is important. But investigators, when they found the tarp, they just left it out for a bit to air it out, which could have gotten rid of some evidence that might have been on it. And again, it's very unclear as to the amount of gasoline. Also, there was no evidence found on this tarp. There was no DNA or anything like that. And as far as I could tell, It would be unlikely for gasoline to get rid of DNA, like the scent could still be there if there had been a body in the tarp, but to just totally get rid of any DNA of a body that had been wrapped in that tarp would be unlikely unless it had been, you know, lit on fire. So, Scott said that that tarp was for use during his fishing trip, and again, some people said there was fertilizer on the tarp as well, which could supposedly be used to destroy DNA, but anyways... The weird thing, too, was the leaf blower that was on top of it. Supposedly, he hadn't used it recently, 
So it didn't make sense why he would put the tarp away and then the leaf blower on top of it and then it leaked. Like, it seems like he set that up on purpose. Now, again, just to be the other side of things, <laughs> I mean, if his shed was like a mess in any way, which I find that a little hard to believe, but you know, something could have fallen over. Like, he could have put the tarp there. Maybe he was in a hurry. There was a lot going on. Perhaps a leaf blower was nearby and just kind of like tipped over on it. We don't really know. So now we have Scott. He's put the umbrellas into the bed of his trunk. He goes back into the house and he says he fills up a mop bucket because Lacey told him that she wanted to mop the floor. This was thought to be odd because the housekeeper had just been there the previous day before, but Scott said that Lacey mopped the floor every day. Her family said that they didn't believe this was true, but I mean, you don't know. Who knows? They were also having people over the following day for that Christmas brunch and they had a dog as well as cats, so he said that the area she was mopping was an area where the cats and dogs came in and out of the house a lot, so there would be mud and dirt there, and that was where the mop bucket was found, so that did kind of match up, but it was also considered really strange. A little before 10 o'clock, Scott said that he and Lacey were watching the Today Show together, and Martha Stewart was on it. He said he remembered that she was talking about meringue and cookies. The prosecution actually brought this up during the trial and said there was no such show on on December 24th and he had to have been lying. And they, I think, said that there was a show on December 23rd that mentioned it, so he must have watched it then. But then the defense came up with the video of Martha Stewart talking about Meringue on the 24th. So she was on on December 24th talking about Meringue. Now, I, for the life of me, have seen in a few places that she was also on a show on December 23rd talking about meringue as well. But like, I searched everywhere trying to find evidence that this show that came out on December 23rd existed. Couldn't find it, so I don't know if that's just based off some confusion of the prosecution initially saying, oh, this show was on on the 23rd, and then the defense saying, no, it was on on the 24th. So we do know for a fact that Martha Stewart was on TV at 9.48 talking about meringue on Christmas Eve 2002. As far as her being on December 23rd, it's a possibility, but I could find no evidence of that whatsoever. Also, there was conflicting accounts of whether it was a Martha Stewart show or the Today Show featuring Martha Stewart, which that was the segment on December 24th, but then there was some mention about the show being her show or something December 23rd. But when I looked, I mean, I looked at IMDb and everything, and it didn't appear that any of her shows that she was ever on had anything happening during December of 2002. So it's likely that she was on that show on December 24th on the Today Show, and that is what he was talking about. Also, I really don't think that this is all that relevant. It's made a big deal of, kind of like the computer search. You know, why would Scott Peterson have this show on? Why would he be watching it? And, you know, if Lacey wasn't there, I mean, if he was planning ahead and trying to have his day mapped out so that he didn't look suspicious, he knew that Lacey loved to watch Martha Stewart. She loved shows like that. So maybe he put it on for that reason. But again, it would be a little odd because if he had just murdered her the night before and he's preparing to, you know, dispose of her body, sadly, why would he think to put a TV show on and go on the computer, you know? So these are just the things that get debated back and forth. So after watching the show for a little bit, because he probably wasn't that interested if he was really watching it, <laughs> he said he left out the side French door, and when he left, Lacey was mopping, and he said that this was sometime between 9.49 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. I believe at first he said that he left at 9.30 a.m., 
and people find that highly suspicious because it's the wrong time, and actually let me explain to you why it's the wrong time. Scott's cell phone was shown pinging because I believe he listened to a voicemail, and it was shown pinging at 10.08 a.m. near his house. Now, it said he must have still been home or sitting in his driveway or just leaving his home when this voicemail was listened to or when he was using his phone at 10.08 a.m., but it's also important to note that the warehouse he was traveling to was very close by. It was only a nine-minute drive. So he could have been listening to that voicemail, yes, in his driveway, or he could have already left and been listening to it on the way. You know, it's just one of those things. But anyways, he said he left around 9.30, and then later he said that he actually left later on, closer to between 10 and 10.30. And of course, this is questioned, why did you say 9.30 when you really left later? And personally, I could see being confused about the time I left, especially if it was a day that wasn't common. You know, this was a holiday. He wasn't on his usual schedule. So not trying to defend the guy. I'm just saying I could see where somebody would get confused by a half hour. So again, he then drove nine minutes to his warehouse and again, checked the voicemail on his cell phone at 10.08 a.m. And he said that when he left, Lacey was wearing black pants and a white top, and that information was put on her missing flyers. Now, before we get into more of Scott's events of that day, at 10.18, so this would have been around 10 minutes after Scott left, if the cell phone pinging is correct and everything, a neighbor states that she found Scott and Lacey's dog, Mackenzie, outside with her leash on, and then brought her to the backyard and closed the gate and left her there. And she also said that the leash was muddy. So we will get back to that in a bit. But Scott goes to the warehouse, he parks, and he goes inside of the warehouse. So he can't, the warehouse is not that large. He can't like be bringing the truck into the warehouse and parking it in there because he also has a boat in there. But he parks it outside and then walks into the warehouse. While he's there, he checks his email at some point between 10.30 a.m. and 10.56 a.m. And he sent an email to his boss because his boss had left him a voicemail. And evidence does show that Scott was logged onto his work computer for 26 minutes during that time. He also looked up instructions on the computer about how to assemble a woodworking tool. And this tool was called a mortizer, I believe is how you say it. And he had received it from UPS on December 20th. So this was a tool that he actually had. He told investigators that after, you know, being on the computer and checking his email and looking up instructions, he assembled this tool and it was found inside of the warehouse. This tool, by the way, because I didn't know what it was, <laughs> is used in woodworking to cut square or rectangle shapes into a piece of wood. So with the timing of everything, the time that he ends up leaving the warehouse, it does make sense that while he was there, he really just had the time to be on the computer, which was documented. And then I think there was about 20 minutes after that before he left. And during that time, he said that he set up this tool. And the tool was found assembled inside of the warehouse. Now, we know that the tool, though, he got on December 20th, right? So it's very possible that he had already assembled this. But then it begs the question, why was he looking up how to assemble it? And again, maybe this was part of his cover that he was planning for himself. But I have to say, if all of these things were supposed to be part of his story, you know, his, why can't I think of the word, alibi, <laughs> that's, I mean, he was really, really planning it out. So it could go either way because, you know, he makes a lot of mistakes <laughs> in the entirety of this whole situation. So it kind of would surprise me if he was planning out going on the computer, watching Martha Stewart, you know, saying he assembled a tool when maybe he had already assembled it. So I don't know. But anyways, 
20 minutes go by after he's on the computer. That's when he does the, you know, makes the tool. And he also says that he unloads some tools from his toolbox that are in the back of his truck. So again, why didn't he take the umbrellas out? (laughs) And he also says that he cuts his knuckle on his toolbox and he then opens up the driver's side door to get a napkin. And he tells investigators that they may find some blood there. Testing was done later, and one drop of blood was found on his car door, and it did match to Scott's blood. So it was his blood. Also, I just have to say, I'm just thinking of this. I mean, he's pointing out a lot of details to these investigators, and if he was just someone going about his day, would he have remembered to mention all of these things? Or is it because he was on high alert, because he had killed his wife, that he was remembering to mention these little details? and perhaps provide a cover for maybe he cut his knuckle in a different way, and that's why his blood was on the door, you know? So, Scott, remember, he had told Amy, Lacey's sister, that he was going to be going golfing that day. He told other people he was going to be golfing that day, too. But he actually decided that it was too cold to go golfing, and I did look up the weather because the weather gets brought up a little bit with this case. And in Modesto, California, that day in 2002, The high was about 49, and the low was in the low 30s. So it was chilly, and he did decide that it was too cold to go golfing. So instead, he decides that he wants to go fishing, which I'm sorry, but that doesn't really make sense. Why would you want to go fishing on the water if it's too cold? It's just an odd excuse uh, that literally makes no sense. I would think that golfing would be a warmer activity than fishing. Fishing, you're literally just sitting on a boat. (laughs) I mean, I know there's more to it than that. But it's, you know, less like golfing, you're walking around, you're swinging the club. I mean, neither of them are super physically taxing. But you would think being out on the water would be colder than golfing. So anyways, (laughs) that's just my thought on that. I think that's an odd excuse. But he decides to head to Berkeley Marina to try out his new fishing boat. So Berkeley Marina was pretty far. I believe it would have taken him close to an hour to get there. And it's said that he passed several other fishing places on the way to get there but he wanted to test out his boat in open water and salt water, and I'm not sure if the places he passed he would have been able to do that, but he did go there. I don't know if he was familiar with the area or what was his reasoning for going to this particular marina, but it was far away, and I just want to get into something real quick. I see this come up a lot. Why would Scott Peterson leave his pregnant wife at home on Christmas Eve day to go fishing? And personally, (laughs) I don't think that's strange at all. I don't, I really don't. It's not that they had kids yet. You know, if they had kids and he had done that, I would find that stranger. But she had things, you know, supposedly, according to him, going on that day. She was going to be baking, cleaning, preparing for the next day. And he had the day off. You know, he worked and this was going to be a day off. So he probably wanted to just go do something. And honestly, like, I wouldn't find that strange at all in my own relationship. Again, it's different with kids, but I really, I I wouldn't think that was strange at all personally. I know a lot of people think that's weird, but I don't think that that part of it is weird at all. They were going to be going to dinner at her family's later, so they had planned to do that. They were going to be, you know, spending time together, supposedly. So, again, he goes to Berkeley Marina because he wants to test out his new fishing boat. The fishing boat was purchased on December 9th of 2002, and he paid for it in cash, which was $1,400. And people thought he paid in cash so that he could hide the purchase. It was said that Lacey knew nothing about this boat. He hadn't told anybody about the boat. The boat was previously used for fishing. It was equipped to be used for fishing. He had searched for the boat on December 7th, so he bought it pretty quickly. 
Now, I don't know if he had been searching for it before this point, but he was definitely, like, extensively searching around December 7th, and then he bought it December 9th. So that's a pretty quick time period. The reason I mention this is because it's a day after something significant happened. So I mentioned in part one that Scott was having an affair with a woman while Lacey was pregnant. They had met about a month before Lacey went missing. And according to him, Lacey knew about this. She wasn't happy about it, but it wasn't going to break them apart, he said. But nobody else knew about this. He lied to police about it up front. And when this came out, it was, you know, a big deal. Now, the way that Scott had been introduced to this woman, Amber, that he was having the affair with, and Amber did not know that he was married, just to throw that out there, was by a friend named Sean, this woman who Scott knew from work. And Sean also didn't know that Scott was married. And she knew that Amber was single and looking for a serious relationship. She thought that Amber and Scott would hit it off. So she had kind of set this whole thing up. And anyways, a little after they had been seeing each other for a bit, Sean, the friend, found out that Scott was in fact married. So she called Scott and she's like, you need to tell Amber the truth. I can't believe you're lying about this. You know, that kind of thing. And that happened on December 6th, which is the day before Scott was looking for a fishing boat. So just something to keep in mind. So just a little more info on this woman finding out that Scott was married. He asked Sean not to tell Amber that he was married. He wanted to tell her himself, and she agreed with that. So on December 9th, this is the same day that he bought the boat, <laughs> he went to Amber's house. She said that he cried at her kitchen table, and he told her that he had recently lost his wife and that this would be his first holiday without her. He didn't explain what he meant by loss. I know a lot of places say that he said that she had died. But he didn't specifically say that, although saying that he recently lost his wife is a very odd thing to say. And he told her that he would tell her more about it later. She said that he said something along the lines of after January 26, he could explain more to her, so not sure what that's all about. Now some more info on not only the boat he purchased, but he also purchased a fishing license on December 20th, okay? Specifically for December 23rd and 24th, even though he claimed that this decision to go fishing was something that was last minute, he told several people that he was planning on golfing that day. Even after he had gone fishing, he was still pe telling people that he had gone golfing. So this was a strange thing to lie about. On December 20th, he did purchase a new fishing pole and lures. It's weird though because the fishing pole that he bought was made for freshwater and not saltwater. So that was odd. But anyways, yeah, just strange that he's trying to claim that this fishing expedi expedition was last minute, yet he had purchased a fishing license specifically for those days. And I'll get a little bit more into the fishing license in part three, because I do have some thoughts on that. But let's just move along. There's a lot out there that says that Scott searched a lot about the San Francisco Bay and looked at maps and fishing reports, as well as a U.S. geological survey chart of water currents prior to his wife going missing and people think that's really strange that he would look that up but it's also I mean if he was like looking at fishing boats getting a fishing license bought a new boat was preparing to fish and was trying to find the right area I don't really think those things are all that strange but it was looked at as strange so back to Scott's <laughs> itinerary he leaves the warehouse backs up his truck and hooks the boat up to it. He then rolls the door closed and shuts the warehouse. So it's important to note that he couldn't have had the truck 
and the boat inside the warehouse at the same time, you know, if he did have Lacey's body in the back of, or the bed of his truck, he would have had to have taken it out to put it into his boat in broad daylight somewhere, whether that had been at the warehouse, at the marina, I guess the side of the road, if maybe he could have stopped somewhere. But just to point out that he couldn't, it's not like he could have hidden the truck and the boat inside the warehouse and then moved things around secretly there. Like if he had done it in the, at the marina or his warehouse, he would have been seen. There was a lot of people around. It just, it wouldn't have made sense. So at 11.18 a.m., Scott drove to Berkeley Marina. He purchased a boat launch ticket at 12.54 p.m., and he did have his receipt to show this. Also, I just did the math because I'm looking at these times. So at 11.18, he leaves to drive to Berkeley Marina, and then at 12.54, he has a receipt to show that he did, in fact, get there. And when you look at a map quest or something like that, the distance between these two was around a little over an hour and a half. And Scott had said that it probably took him an hour and a half to get there, although maybe a little longer because he was pulling a trailer and not going as fast. So the times do line up. I don't think he would have had too much time to be doing anything else on this ride. I mean, possibly, but I think it would have been difficult. So anyways, he goes to the marina He goes out on his boat and says he goes north for about two miles. He said he was near a little island with a bunch of trash on it, and there was a big sign that said no landing, and also some broken piers, and these areas did in fact exist, so he was likely out where he said he was. He said that he had forgotten new lures, and they were in his truck, so he had some freshwater jigs that were in his tackle box that he brought with him, and... The bag of new lures were found in his truck, so that was made a big deal of as well, that the lures were found in his truck, he didn't even bring them, but he did have other fishing equipment with him, so he did have fishing stuff on the boat, it's not that he had nothing, but also, it is strange. Scott later said that he was fishing for sturgeon and striped bass, which I'm not very familiar with fishing, so I don't know a lot about that, but people that are familiar with fishing said that the area that he went to would not have been a great place to fish for sturgeon. I'm not sure about the striped bass, but they said if he was fishing for sturgeon, then it's weird that he was using lures and not bait, because Scott had only purchased artificial lures. So this was questioned, you know, was he really even out there to be fishing? What was his real intentions for being on the water? It doesn't make sense. And remember, he had also purchased a freshwater fishing pole and was in salt water, There was an anchor that was found on his boat, and they said that it didn't make sense, anything he was saying, and the fishing gear he had wasn't suitable, and the homemade cement anchor would not have held his boat down against the currents, so keep that in mind for later. A friend of Scott's from the neighborhood, Greg Reed, said that Scott had never mentioned a fishing trip because they had spoke on Christmas Eve afternoon. Scott had called him just to chat, which I guess wasn't strange, that was something that they did regularly and he never mentioned that he had gone fishing. Also, Lacey Peterson's stepfather, the one who lived with her mother, was really into fishing, and he had not heard any mention of this new fishing boat. He was also out fishing that morning on December 24th, and, you know, he thought it was strange that he'd never mentioned that to him. He kept up with his whole, you know, he had gone golfing earlier, so he was lying about that, which, why lie, you know? It doesn't make sense. So anyways, he gets back to the marina after he's done fishing. I think he said it had started to rain a little bit, so he decided to go in. He was only fishing for, I believe, under an hour and a half. So he had said two hours. He was out there for about 80 minutes. 
He said that when he got back to the marina, he talked to some guys about fishing, and then he tried to back his trailer down the ramp to load the boat, and he said a few maintenance guys had a laugh at him because he was having a hard time. A little after two, Scott left the marina, and he called Lacey, first at home, and she didn't answer. He did leave a voicemail there, but I couldn't find any records of what it said. I would love to know what it said because I would love to know if he said anything like what he was doing or anything like that. But we do have a different voicemail he left because after she didn't answer at home, he did call her cell phone and he left a voicemail. There is a recording of it. I'll just read it here. But he said this, hey, beautiful. I just left you a message at home. It's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to get to Bella Farms to get the basket for Papa. I was hoping you would get this message and go on out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. Scott says he then pulled over for gas at 3.25 p.m. and he called Lacey again. He made another call to Lacey's cell phone at 3.52 p.m. and did not leave a message. And then he got back to his warehouse at 4.13 p.m. He said he unhooked his boat, didn't spend a lot of time in the office. He had seen a fax that had come in regarding a shipment. And there was, in fact, a fax that had come in after he had left the warehouse. Between the time he had left and been out fishing, there was a fax there, so it was confirmed at that time. Now, he then left to go home, and he arrived home between 4.30 p.m. and 4.45 p.m. He went through the side gate, and he found his dog there, Mackenzie, with his leash on. Now, I don't know if Scott thought that was odd, because here's the thing. There was people like the postman that would come to their house, as well as Lacey's mother that said that they did leave the dog outside. Lacey's mother in her book said something about them leaving to go on a trip or something, and they just left the dog outside for the entirety of the trip. So I don't know if it was that strange for him to have found the dog with his leash on in the yard like that. And also people said that the dog would be outside, it would get out of the gates, and it would wander around, you know, on the lawn or whatever. So I don't know how strange that was. I don't know if he ever thought it was strange. When I, you know, originally looked into this case way back when, I always thought that was such a strange, a strange thing that happened. But now I'm like, maybe they just, that was common and it wasn't that strange at all. But anyways, he gets home. He takes the dog's leash off and puts it on the patio table. He then goes inside and the dog and either cat or cats run into the house. Now, the mop bucket, he says, was still on the floor, and when the animals ran into the house, he was worried one of the cats might drink out of it, so he poured the water out in the front walkway, and then he went and got the mail. Then he noticed Lacey's car was in the driveway. I'm not sure how he didn't notice before, but Lacey wasn't home, so he's like, okay, so Lacey's car is in the driveway. She's not home. Well, she must be with her mother. So he assumes Lacey's mother had picked her up and that she was over her mother's house, her parents' house, helping prepare for dinner. I'm not sure why he assumed this, but he did. He said his clothes were wet, so he took them off, put them into the washer, and did a load of laundry. He said this was a common thing for him to do when he got home because he did work with chemicals. He was a fertilizer salesman, so that does make sense. He then took the pizza box from the night before out and grabbed some pizza, had some milk, ew, And the box was out later when investigators were at the house, so it's thought that he did actually do this. He then took a shower and got dressed, so people think that's really incriminating. And it is odd 
But if he genuinely believed that Lacey was at her parents' house, and remember, he didn't make it home in time to go pick up that gift basket, so he's probably thinking that she's going to be mad about that, and that he better be ready to leave. I'm just saying if he's innocent, right? That he better be ready to leave at the right time and make it to Christmas Eve and not be late. But it also is strange to do all that when your wife isn't around and you haven't actually confirmed that she's at her parents' house. So after he takes a shower, he goes to listen to the house phone messages. And on the messages are one that he had left for Lacey, meaning she hadn't listened to it. And then there was one from Lacey's stepfather asking if she could bring whipped cream, which I do talk about in part one. So after he hears this message, he calls Lacey's parents because he was thinking she was there, but now these messages, he's not so certain. This call was at 5.17 p.m., and right away, when he asks Lacey's mother, you know, is Lacey there? She says no, and then he says, she's missing which Sharon thought that was an odd statement. It's thought to be an odd statement. I think it is an odd statement to jump right to that, but also he's literally just stating the obvious, like she's missing. I don't know where she is because he didn't. But yeah, I don't know if I would phrase it that way. I'd probably just say, well, I don't know where, you know, she is. Like, yeah, she's not here and her car is here. So this is kind of weird, right? So over the next half hour, Scott spoke twice more to Lacey's mom. He began calling neighbors and friends, supposedly at some point was knocking on neighbors' doors, and then he eventually headed to the park where Lacey was known to walk the dog, and he and Mackenzie, his dog, went down to the park. A question I see that gets asked a lot or just kind of like thrown out there is, Scott never called Lacey's cell phone again after he returned home. So he had been calling it on his way home, he gets home, and he doesn't call it again. And as far as I know, he never calls the cell phone again, at least like not this day, which people think that's really strange. You know, he doesn't know where she is. He calls her parents and then it's like she's missing, but he never tries to actually call her cell phone. It was later found dead, no battery in her car. And this was 2002. So I'm not sure what her cell phone habits were. Was she the type to carry her cell phone around? Was she the type to forget it? When he had called her earlier and left a voicemail, you know, did he realize that the phone was dead? You know how you can kind of tell that if someone's phone was at least used to be able to? Someone's phone is dead, it would just go automatically to voicemail. Maybe he had that in his head, so he didn't think there was a point. But it is weird that he didn't think to once call that cell phone after he realized that she was not at her parents' house, you know? If he thought that she had gone for a walk or that, like, nobody knew where she was, he didn't call her cell phone. I do think Lacey's mother called her cell phone. So maybe that information was relayed to him and he didn't see a need to also do it. And again, cell phones were not what they are today. So a lot of people would forget to bring them around. They wouldn't be charged. Like They just weren't attached to people's hands the way that they are today. But anyways, him calling her parents to see where she is lines up, you know, as opposed to calling her cell phone because, again, this was 2002. So (laughs) anyways, Scott did check with neighbors like he said he did. But here's a strange thing. One neighbor, a husband and wife, overheard Scott saying that he had been playing golf that day and had tried to call Lacey, couldn't get in touch with her. A relative said that Scott had told him that he played golf and he had tried to talk to Scott at his house that day, but Scott was on the phone. Eventually, Scott got off the phone and told him that Lacey might be walking the dog in the park and also told him that he hadn't been with her because he was playing golf. So he was still actively telling people that he was playing golf that day. Which is so strange, you know? It does not make him look good at all. A friend of Scott's from the neighborhood, Greg Reed, and his wife, they were also friends with Lacey as well, so 
he was the friend that Scott had called on his way home from fishing, and they had, like, a casual conversation. I believe he's the one who said that, you know, he never mentioned he was fishing. But he ended up calling them later on Christmas Eve. He left a really frantic message, and Greg described it as him sounding distraught. He said something along the lines of, have you or your wife seen or talked to Lacey today or yesterday? Very strange, (laughs) because why would he be asking about yesterday if he had supposedly been with Lacey on the morning of December 24th, you know? Did he not have his full alibi ready to go yet? Now, police were at the house very quickly after it was reported that Lacey was missing. I believe they got there within an hour. And when they talked to Scott in the house, you know, he told them this whole story pretty much that I just shared with you aside from maybe some of the timing being a little bit off, like the time he left the house. Everything else was pretty much, as I said it, he never changed his story. He always stuck to it. And he told them that he went fishing that day. So it's not as if he tried to hide his fishing, you know, adventure (laughs) from the police. He was straight up with them. He even had a receipt that said he had been at Berkeley Marina. He gave that to them. They said, do you have a receipt for the gas station you stopped at the way home? He said, no. You know, they thought that was weird. They thought it was weird. He had a receipt to the marina. It's like, well, which one do you want? Do you want him to have the receipt? Do you not want him to have the receipt? (laughs) Also, who gets a receipt for getting gas? But anyways, he did tell them that he was fishing that day. It's not something that he tried to hide from police, which is just odd. Why lie and say you're golfing? Or did he realize, okay, this is getting serious, I better be upfront and honest because now it's police asking me questions, and then he decides to say, yeah, actually I was fishing because he knows that they're going to find out anyways? I don't know. Maybe he thought it made him look bad to say that he was fishing an hour and a half away on Christmas Eve and then his wife goes missing, you know? Maybe he felt like people would blame him for not being home, perhaps the golf course was a lot closer so it didn't make him look like he didn't care about his wife or something, I don't know just some thoughts. So a neighbor said that that morning when she was backing out of her driveway, she noticed the dog Mackenzie alone outside standing in the street. So she went and put him back into the backyard. Again, she said he had his leash on. It was covered with wet leaves and grass some mud. She said that she found the dog at 10 18 a.m. and put the dog into the yard at 10 30 a.m. She said that Lacey's car was in the driveway and then she went home to wash her hands And when she did this, she said she saw a man walking from the park. I'm not really sure how that's relevant, but this is like a huge part of the prosecution's, you know, whole case against Scott is that this woman saw the dog, Mackenzie, at 1018 and then put him into the yard. And it doesn't really make sense that she put the dog into the yard at 1030. It's kind of a long time to just walk into a yard. But anyways, maybe he was being difficult. Why is this a big deal? Because Scott said that he left originally at 9.30, and then he was like, no, actually it was closer to 10. And it turns out he probably left a little bit after 10, right? Around 10.08 by what his cell phone records show. So that would only be about 10 minutes between when he left and when this neighbor found Mackenzie. And a huge part of the defense's case is that there were so many sightings of Lacey that day walking around the neighborhood. Remember, Scott said that she had planned to take the dog for a walk, and there was, I think, like, upwards of 30 sightings of supposedly Lacey, or at least a pregnant woman matching her description and walking a dog that matched Mackenzie's description. And so the defense was saying he couldn't have killed her in the time frame that you said, December, you know, the night of December 23rd, early hours of December 24th, if she was sighted out and about walking while he was proven to be at the marina or, you know, at the warehouse and on his way to the marina. And we will get more into those sightings in part three, but 
this woman says that the dog was outside at 10.18, right? So if the theory is that Lacey went on a walk and then the dog, you know, something happened to her, she got abducted and the dog was left behind, the dog should have been found much later. Now I will say this though, again, the dog was outside a lot, it got out a lot. So it could be possible that the dog got out, this neighbor put the dog into the yard, and then Lacey took her out for a walk after that. So I do want to throw that out there, but you know, this time doesn't look good, okay, for Scott. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make it really seem like she was on a walk at all. But there's so many sightings. Like, another neighbor said that he saw the dog at 1045 when he was out playing with his own dog, and he was convinced that this was Mackenzie. And with all these supposed sightings of Lacey, of the dog, none of these people were used as witnesses in the trial. Not for the prosecution and not for the defense. So just something to keep in mind, okay? (laughs) Because the defense probably should have talked to a few of these people as part of their case, but they never did. Now, this same woman who had put the dog back into the yard, she said that Scott called her around 8.30 p.m. to tell her that Lacey was missing and to ask if she knew anything. So she told him, yeah, she found the dog and he ended up giving the phone to the police and they spoke to her. And then, I don't know, he got back on the phone with her or whatever, and he invited her to join him and his parents for Christmas dinner the next night. What? (laughs) He remembered that she was a vegetarian and said that there would be cheese tortellini there that she could have. That's so weird. Why would you be inviting your neighbor to a Christmas dinner the next night? Like, I I don't know. I find that totally bizarre. She actually ended up going to Lacey and Scott's house that night, uh, Christmas Eve. And Lacey's parents were there. They were really upset. And she said she spoke to Scott and he told her that the police had taken a gun of his and rags from the house without telling him. So that's what was on his mind. He was upset about that. And that seemed to be like his top priority to share with her. Not that he was upset about his missing pregnant wife. But (laughs) anyways, this neighbor also did end up going over for this Christmas dinner with Scott's family. And I don't know why, but (laughs) she said that I guess he was cooking these cheese tortellinis. And he was telling his parents that the police had advised him not to take a lie detector test because he was quote-unquote too emotional. So she actually found the entire situation really bizarre and strange to the point that she left because she was uncomfortable. So that's weird. But anyways, that is true. The police at some point early on did ask Scott Peterson to take a lie detector test. And at first he said yes, he would take it. But then his father advised him not to. And people think that's very suspicious. Now, I don't know. I don't think it's that strange. Lie detector tests can be all over the place. It's one of those things where if you don't want to take it, you look bad. If you do take it and the test results come out unconfirmed or whatever, or that you're lying, then you look even worse. And they're not very accurate. So I kind of get the not taking the lie detector test. And by the time he got a lawyer involved, he was also advised not to take it by his lawyer. So at this point, a full-blown search is going on. Scott did participate in the search. He was down with Mackenzie looking around for Lacey at this park where she was known to walk the dog. He did ask police if they were going to have cadaver dogs look into things like that night. And they thought that was strange because why was he already thinking about cadaver dogs? And it is weird. Like, why was he thinking about that? But maybe he was being realistic or maybe there's a lot of different terminology for dogs that find things by scent. Some are cadaver dogs, some are, I think, scent dogs, others are trailing dogs. So perhaps he just meant a dog that could sniff out her scent and he just called it by the wrong name. But it is odd that that's where his mind went. 
They end up finding Lacey's purse inside the home. I believe it's in a closet. Again, they find her phone in her car. It's not on. It's dead. They ask Scott, you know, at some point, are you having an affair? He says no. They look at Scott's truck. They find the umbrellas wrapped up in a blue tarp and a cover to his boat. And Scott, again, said that he forgot to drop them off. Shotgun shells are found in Scott's toolbox, as well as a nylon rope. Shopping bags with lures are found and a receipt for them, and also a handgun. The mop, bucket, and towels are collected, and then they ask to go see Scott's warehouse, and he says, yeah, let's go. Now, it's reported that he told them that there was no power at the warehouse, so when they went out there, they were using flashlights, but then come to find out there was power at the warehouse. I don't know how true that is, but if that is true, that makes him look weird. They do take pictures of the boat inside of his warehouse, and Scott asks the police not to show the pictures to his boss, probably because he's not supposed to have a boat in the warehouse, is my guess. But again, they're like, why is he concerned with this? His wife and soon-to-be baby are literally missing. Why is this what's on his mind? So he has this interview where he, you know, relays all the facts of the day, his version of facts around midnight for a little over an hour. It is recorded with video and audio. And again, Scott's asked why Lacey was mopping the floor. They just had a housekeeper there. And Scott laughs and says, quote, she was very meticulous about it, with it being Christmas and the dogs and the cats in the house, unquote. He was asked if he fired his gun recently. He said not in a year and that the gun in the truck was his. He did confirm that. He said it was there from hunting pheasant around a month before. And he said that it was registered maybe to his father. So just to clarify... I don't think he actually shot the gun when he was hunting for pheasant a month earlier, if that was, like, confusing at all. He was checked for gunpowder residue, and he was open to that. You know, he said, fine, do that. Yeah, then the story blew up. Um, You know, they were interviewing Lacey's family. Scott was not wanting to be involved in any of these interviews. Like, he would go to these press conferences or whatever they were having, but he didn't want to be speaking in them. Lacey's family said that they postponed opening Christmas gifts, which is just sad. Her brother, Brent, said, Christmas is over for us. We all feel empty and want our sister returned. A tip line was set up. A lot of tips came in. The family put up a $25,000 reward for any information that would lead to her return. Scott was interviewed again for a few hours, I believe, the following day. There's organized volunteer groups looking for Lacey. They had set up a whole volunteer area to organize all of this and have people out there searching for her. The family said it was very out of character for Lacey to just leave without telling anyone in her family. So around this time, either that night she went missing or maybe the next day, it depends, you know, again, where you read it, Stacy Boyers, who was Lacey's close friend, visits with Scott at the house and she notices that he's doing a ton of vacuuming especially around certain areas, like the couch, the armchairs, and the washer and dryer. And he's just like vacuuming, 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 you know? (laughs) Why is he doing this? And she says it's during a time when other people are out handing out missing person flyers, and he's just vacuuming away. And in response to her asking why he's doing this, he says that, quote, I can't keep the house clean enough, unquote, according to Stacy. So, odd. Now, I will say... And I'll mention it in part three, but he does seem like the type who's a little bit particular about cleaning and stuff like that, but we'll get into that in part three. So the reward increased to $125,000, and Scott 
makes a post thanking volunteers. Sharon Rocha, Lacey's mom, states that Scott is overwhelmed by the support of the community. According to anywhere you read or look up anything about this case, the family was very supportive of Scott until they found out about the affair he was having for Amber, and then they basically were done with him and thought that he had killed Lacey. At one news conference, Scott leaves early because he's upset that the media is asking questions about his fishing trip, and so he leaves. He refuses to speak to the media. Again, this could make him look guilty, or he could literally just be not wanting, like, the attention on him, or, you know, like, feeling, why are you suspecting me? Like, I'm trying to find my wife, or whatever. But he's spoken to again by police. They said at one point they asked to talk to him again, and he said, yeah, sure, come inside and wait, and then he left the house. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, but if so, that's odd. But he has spoken to again, and he said that Lacey would usually wear one of his jackets when she went out walking, but he wasn't sure if any were missing. And they thought that was strange that he didn't know that. But, you know, if it had been like an old jacket or something, how would he know if it was gone? He does give scent items for the dogs to use, and he asks for receipts. Again, this is thought of as strange. It kind of is, but at the same time, maybe he just wanted the items back. Or maybe he wanted a way to show exactly what was used, because he was worried these things might be used against him, which could point to a guilty state of mind. One of the bloodhounds goes to the same spot over and over again in the driveway, which makes people think that she left in a car and not on foot. Why wouldn't it follow a route that she had taken if she was supposedly walking Mackenzie? Instead, it was like going to the driveway, indicating that that's where her scent was done, which would mean that she probably left in a car and not on foot. Two more news conferences happen that Scott Peterson does not appear at. His father states that he is totally distraught, really tired, really stressed out about being accused. His mother says that there's no possibility that he would be involved. They were like honeymooners even after five years of being married. They doted on each other. We all wanted to be like them. Which is like all good and well, but he was literally cheating on her while she was very pregnant. So I don't know if they were like honeymooners. I think that's pretty inaccurate. But his family also didn't know that he was having an affair until it came out, so they were not aware of that at this time. The dogs are brought to the boat launch, and they pick up on a scent that ends at the water, which definitely looks bad for Scott. Like, he, you know, the scent was there, and then he took her out into the water, which, that's not a good look. That makes him look very guilty. Now, Lacey's brother defends Scott and says there's no way he's involved in the disappearance. Absolutely not. He said that Scott is definitely scared for Lacey and has been helping with the search. They're searching everywhere, and here's a weird fact, okay? They said that none of her shoes are missing. Now, I don't know how that's established. Like, me, myself, I have, like, all these old shoes, like, pairs of shoes. (laughs) I wouldn't even be able to tell you if a pair was missing, and my significant other definitely wouldn't be able to tell you if a pair of my shoes was missing. Nor would anybody I know, actually. (laughs) But if that's true, say they somehow knew all of her pairs of shoes and none of them are missing, that definitely makes Scott look more guilty because if he did what the prosecution said and wrapped her body in a tarp, she probably was not wearing shoes at that time, so therefore, none of her shoes would be missing. So anytime you really look into this case, it's often stated that Lacey's family gave Scott their full support until they found out about the affair he was having with Amber Frey and then they basically thought he was guilty. But if you read the book by Lacey's mother, you kind of see that she didn't always have full support towards Scott. She was suspicious and wary of him, but she did say that if she thought Scott was responsible, then it would kind of be like she would have to admit to herself that Lacey wasn't going to come back. 
And she also worried that if Scott did have nothing to do with Lacey's disappearance, then when Lacey came home, it wouldn't be good for their relationship. So those were some of the thoughts running through her mind, and I don't believe that the family, at least Lacey's mother, ever really gave Scott their full support. Yes, it appeared that way in the media, but I don't think that she was 100% thinking, you know, there's no way he could have done this. I think she did have her suspicions very early on. At least that's how it comes across in the book that she wrote. Sharon also mentions this really bizarre thing, or I guess you could call it suggestion that Scott made with coming up with ideas of how to find Lacey and figure out what was going on and where she was. And he suggested a dog psychic to the family. He thought that they should get a dog psychic. He said that they should pay for the psychic to come and stay, basically finance the whole trip. And the psychic would, I don't know, read the mind of Mackenzie the dog to figure out what had happened to Lacey. The family was not happy about this. I mean, it's an odd suggestion. I I feel like there were probably better ones. Maybe he was getting desperate. I don't know, but I have never really heard of that one. Another thing that was odd that Lacey's mother mentioned in her book was Scott. It was found out that he had three fake diplomas that had been recently purchased for over $200 to different colleges. And he said that it was a joke, that Lacey had bought them for him as kind of like a joke gift because he hadn't ever finished college. He would go and then go to a different college and never finish it. But her family doesn't think that's true. They don't think that she would have spent that much money on a joke gift. Again, this was like close to $300 for these fake diplomas. And they think it was just another way for him to carry on with whatever lies he was telling to people. Some other odd behavior is the family was looking through photos of Lacey to decide which photos they should use to put out to the news, media, missing flyers, things along those lines. And Scott was looking through the photos, and as he was, he was making jokes. For instance, he grabbed one of Lacey in a bikini and said something like, oh, this would get attention, which is an odd thing to say in that moment. You're literally looking for pictures of your missing wife, and you're joking about putting out a picture of her in a bikini. I don't know. I just, I thought that was odd. Some other weird comments he would make to different family members was, oh, I wish Lacey was here because she made really good pasta and I really wish I could have some right now. Which again, an odd thing to say. You know, I guess it depends how he said it and what else he was saying. And, you know, obviously this would be taken out of context, but it is an odd thing to focus on, again, when your wife and unborn son are missing. He would make a few jokes after her disappearance. For instance, I believe her family was at his house and somebody had put a jacket on one of the coat, I'm sorry, on one of the chairs that was in the room. And he made a joke saying that she would be really upset if there was a jacket on that chair, basically implying that she was, you know, meticulous about the way her home was kept. But again, the family just was unsettled by this. But they did continue to support him, especially publicly, until... The thing happened that pretty much changed everything. So Scott was trying to stay out of the media. He didn't want to do interviews. He didn't want pictures of him and Lacey together to be given out when they were looking for pictures for her missing flyer, for instance. He didn't want his picture to be on there as well. He claimed that the focus should just be on her. And in a way, I can see that. But I think the real reason he didn't want his picture to be with Lacey in any of these photos was because he didn't want his mistress, Amber Fry, to see them. And he was also trying to stay out of the media, saying that there was too much focus on him being a suspect, and if he continued to be in the media, that would take attention away from his missing wife, from Lacey. But again, 
I think a lot of this motivation was because he didn't want to be seen by Amber, who at this time, as far as he knew, had no idea that he was the Scott Peterson in the news and that his wife was missing. Again, she thought that he wasn't married, his, you know, his wife was lost, whatever that meant, he had lost his wife, and yeah, he didn't want her to know the truth. But in January of 2003, this woman, Amber Fry, comes forward and says that yes, she has been having an affair with Scott. She did do some kind of press conference because she was getting attacked by the media. People thought that she was in on something or that she knew that he was married, so she did come out and say that she did not know that he was married, she wasn't involved in anything, and she was basically trying to clear her name of any involvement that Scott may have had with the disappearance of his wife. So they had spent time together. It wasn't too much time. It was just several occasions, but she had even had him at a Christmas party where pictures of the two of them were taken, and of course those pictures were put out everywhere. But she even used those pictures for her Christmas cards that year, which I was a little confused by that because they had just met, but you know, maybe he was really giving her the impression that he was serious. He even picked up her daughter from daycare, putting a booster or car seat into his car so that he was able to do so on his own. The three of them decorated a Christmas tree together, and again, she was under the impression that he wanted to have a committed relationship with her. And eventually, around the end of December, Amber had realized that the man that she was still speaking to was in fact Scott Peterson, whose wife was missing, and a friend actually pointed this out to her, and after that, she contacted the police, and they started recording the phone calls that she would have with Scott. For instance, she called Scott about 15 minutes before a vigil that was being held for Lacey Peterson, I believe on December 31st, and they talked for a minute or two, and that call was recorded. He acts like everything's fine. He doesn't mention anything about what's really going on. He then calls her later that night. Again, this is New Year's Eve, so he calls her later that night, and they talk for a while, And when he's talking to her, he tells her that he is in Paris looking at the Eiffel Tower and that there's fireworks. And of course, he was not in Paris, obviously. He had already told her prior to all of this that he was traveling a lot over the holidays. He was going to be in Maine and Paris. I forget the other place, but he was going to be in all these different places during the holidays, which was probably an excuse as to why he wouldn't be able to spend them with her because he, you know, was obviously going to be around his family. On this call on New Year's Eve, she asked if he had any New Year's resolutions, and he said he couldn't come up with any. So Scott is eventually shown a picture of himself with Amber, and he denies knowing the person in the photo, or that's what they said, but the interview where this happened had no sound, so this couldn't be confirmed, but he is, you know, given the heads up that they know that he's been having an affair, and he does eventually confess to it. At some point, Scott does call Amber, and this is before he knows that Amber knows that, you know, he is who he is, and he has no idea for some time that their phone calls are being recorded and that she knows a lot more than she's leading on. So he calls her, and he tells her that he has to tell her something. He tells her that he actually does still have a wife and that she's been missing for two weeks. I did read the transcript for this call, and if you do read through it, it does seem like he is upset when he's telling her. He wants to tell her in person, and he keeps saying things about he doesn't want her to be hurt by any of this. So here's an example. This is him. Okay, if you even watch the news at all, well, you haven't. Um, the media has been telling everyone that I had something to do with her disappearance. So the past two weeks, I've been hunted by the media. And I just, I don't want you to be involved in this, to protect yourself. 
I know that I've, you know, I've destroyed. And I, God, I hope, I hope so much that this doesn't hurt you. So Amber questions him, asking him why he told her that he lost his wife on December 9th. And then a few weeks later, you know, lo and behold, she's missing. He says he doesn't know what to say, and Amber tells him to give her an explanation. And here's this conversation. (laughs) I'll read it to you. I, I can't now. I mean, you don't understand. But I don't understand why. You don't know the situation, and... Then why don't you fill me in on the situation and make me understand? I can't now. I'm so sorry for that. Why can't you? Why? It's... It's to protect all of us. To protect all of who? everyone involved. So where is she? That's what we're trying to find out. We have, it's a nationwide search. We have, I mean, it's a half a million dollar reward for information leading to her safe return. Okay, so again, you never answer my question. Why did you tell me it would be the first holidays without her? I can't, sweetie. I can't explain any more now. Later on in this conversation, he says, and I hope that sometime in the future, you will let me tell you the whole story. Whatever that means, no idea. So a few days later, Amber tells Scott that she's going to go to the police, doesn't try to talk her out of it, and the conversation between them is honestly so weird. He keeps alluding to something that he can't tell her, and she's trying to be like, well, tell me, like, what is it? But he's like, I can't tell you now, I can't explain, and I'll go a little bit more into that in part three. But it's honestly just really strange. I would love to know what it was that he felt he couldn't tell her, because at this point, He had already told her that he was married, that his wife was missing, so I don't know if he was trying to say he couldn't tell her what really happened to Lacey or what he had done. It was, it was odd, so I'm not sure on that, but definitely suspicious. So while he was with Amber, he told her that he didn't want any of his own children and he wanted to get a vasectomy. And remember, he had just turned 30, so he was fairly young, but he told her that her daughter would be enough for him, which again, all really strange behavior especially because he literally has a son that's coming within the next few months at this point. But it could also be that he never really took his relationship with Amber seriously, so he didn't want there to be any chance of there being, you know, a baby between the two of them because he already had a baby coming with his wife, Lacey. So either way, it's all really messed up and terrible of him. So again, after all of this comes out, Lacey's family is done with Scott. They no longer think that he's innocent. Scott ends up doing an interview with Diane Sawyer and admits to the affair, and the interview is really odd. You can easily find it on YouTube. I do recommend watching it. He says he's not in love with Amber during the interview. When he refers to Lacey, he uses the past tense. He says, she was amazing, is amazing. So people thought that was really suspicious. He also says that Lacey did know about the affair, but that she wasn't okay with it, but it wasn't something that would break them apart. And then he says that he told the police right away about his affair with Amber, which isn't true. We know this isn't true. He lied to the police about that. But it is said that he did call back after the interview and he said, hey, I lied about that, which I don't know why, but it kind of shows his natural inclination is to just lie. His family is in part of the interview and they say that they're surprised about the affair, so they didn't know what was going on either. But they think it's impossible he would have hurt Lacey His father says he is the gentlest soul he thinks he's ever known. Okay, so because this is getting long, I'm just going to go over a few points a little bit more quickly. Things that were, you know, used against him in the media that I think are important. 
So one thing is there was hair found in pliers. So a piece of hair was found in pliers that were on Scott's boat, and it was determined that the hair might be a match for Lacey. And that is really the only physical evidence that they have, but that was, you know, at least some kind of evidence. It was alleged that a picture of Scott and Lacey from their wedding day had been found in his trash can, I believe at his home, either at his home or in the warehouse, but that had been found in one of those trash cans. On Scott's interview with Diane Sawyer, he says something along the lines of that he can't go into Connor's nursery, you know, basically he keeps the door closed until there's somebody to put in there, so until his baby is home is basically what he's implying. But a search was done of the house in February, and when there are pictures taken of the room, it's shown that there are chairs inside of the nursery. So clearly, you know, it was kind of being used as a storage place, and the door really wasn't closed like he said it was, and he wasn't really staying out of there like he said he was. Lacey's family found out that Scott was inquiring to try to sell him and Lacey's home. And again, this was all between the time of Lacey going missing and then her body being found. So this was between basically January and April. So that's very quick to be looking into selling his home. His excuse for this was that he didn't want Lacey coming back to the house that she had disappeared from. But he did end up scrapping the idea to sell the home pretty quickly. I wonder why. It said that Scott visited the location where he had gone fishing and, you know, where Lacey and Connor's bodies were eventually found. It said that he visited that location multiple times, sometimes in rental cars, and that he would just go there and stare at the water. He sold Lacey's car. So he traded in Lacey's Range Rover SUV for a Dodge pickup truck. And Lacey's family did not know about this, and they were all absolutely shocked. He added Playboy channels and different channels like that to his TV in the weeks after Lacey went missing, so they initially had a plan with their cable that did not include any adult channels, and after she went missing, at least one or two, if not more, were added to this plan. There was a jewelry store clerk, Mariana Felix, and she said she remembered Lacey Peterson bringing in items to be appraised. She said that Lacey told her that her husband wanted to know how much the jewelry was worth, and when Mariana estimated the jewelry to be worth more than $100,000, Lacey said that her husband would be very happy. Mariana also said that Lacey wore a diamond pendant and told her that she never took it off, even when she slept, for fear of losing it. And this diamond pendant was found on top of a dresser at the Petersons' home, meaning that she was not wearing it when she went missing, which is odd. So I don't know if she took it off when she showered and forgot to put it back on, but it is strange that this valuable piece of jewelry was not being worn by Lacey when this, you know, jeweler, and this could be true or false, reported that Lacey said that she always wore it. Let's talk about February 10th real quick. So February 10th was Connor's due date, and it also happened to be Amber Fry's birthday. So on this day, around 6 p.m., two dozen of Lacey's friends and maybe some family members, it was hard to find out exactly who attended this vigil, but they did have a candlelight vigil in honor of Lacey and Connor. And of course, there was a lot of media there as well. And who wasn't there? Scott. Now on that day, Scott called Amber and told her to go to a children's hospital where he had hidden a present for her under a lamppost. And she did actually end up going to get the present. And the present included several gifts like jewelry, 
and a Nora Jones CD that was entitled Come Away With Me. Now, I mentioned that Scott had an older half-sister who had been put up for adoption before he was born, and he didn't meet her until later in life. Her name is Anne Bird, and throughout Scott's trial, she stood by him. She said that she fully believed that he was innocent. But after he was convicted, she ended up coming out with a book, and it was called Blood Brother, 33 Reasons My Brother Scott Peterson is Guilty. So she changed her opinion about how she felt about Scott. <laughs> Here's a quote from her, quote, Even during the search for Lacey, he was completely emotionless, could have cared less, and that's been really hard to deal with. He's a sociopath, and a sociopath does not have a conscience, which is a really hard fact to understand. She also said that her brother acted like a bachelor, he didn't seem like a grieving husband at all, and she said that he was flirting with one of her babysitters who was younger, I think she was 22, and Anne described her as very attractive. She said that he made her a cocktail, quote, went to the store and got cocktail mix and made something called sex teenies, and he was serving them to our babysitter. Anne said that while she believed Scott was innocent at first, his behavior started to make her suspicious. She noticed again and again Scott was or wasn't doing or saying things that he should or shouldn't be saying, and there was a lot that didn't add up that made Anne uncomfortable. She said that when they would watch televised reports about the search for Lacey and Connor, he would say things like, they're looking in the wrong places, this is a waste of time. And then when they reported that they found the body of a woman, he said, quote, They'll find out it's not Lacey, and they'll keep looking for her. And Anne said that she said, Well, they found the body of a baby. And he said, Who would do such a thing? And she said that he yelled it, and she was confused why he was so casual when it was the body of a woman, but when the body of a baby was mentioned, he seemed to get really angry. And his sister has some of her own theories about what happened after she did, in her words, come to terms with Scott being guilty. She says, quote, It's just my own personal theory. But Scott kept going back to their pool to clean it out, and I couldn't figure out why. After a while, I started thinking maybe he drowned her, though I don't know for sure. And one more thing that she said, and this one I thought was a little interesting, but she thinks that Lacey and Connor were murdered on December 23rd because she saw the Christmas table that had been supposedly set up by Lacey, and she said it simply wasn't a Lacey table, and so she figured or assumed that Scott had set it up to make it look like Lacey set it up. Now, I don't know all the details around that, but I don't know. It's interesting. Going along with that setup table is there were neighbors that noticed the morning of December 24th, the curtains in the Peterson's home had not been opened, they hadn't been, you know, pulled to the side, which they said Lacey did every morning. So, also another strange thing. Now, I want to end this episode talking a little bit about the autopsy of Lacey and Connor and just some facts that kind of make it look like Scott is guilty. And just some information about that. There is so much speculation on these autopsies about where the bodies were found, how the bodies were found, and a lot of people do use this information to say that Scott is innocent and has to be innocent. But I want to give you some of this information. If this makes you uncomfortable, just skip over this. And I mean, this is basically the end of the episode, so you can skip to the end. But I talked about there being so much speculation, and a lot of that comes from certain things that were not conclusive. 
There were disagreements between experts about things regarding Lacey's body, so there was a lot of speculation around that, and I'll get into that a little bit more in part three. But one thing I wanted to touch on was Connor. A lot of people like to think that Scott is innocent because Connor was found in much better condition than Lacey. So they think that perhaps Lacey gave birth and the baby was alive for a short time after this and they think that's why, you know, he was in better condition and whatnot. He also had tape or twine wrapped around him and people will say that it was intentionally placed. I even heard somebody saying it was tied exactly like a noose, which I don't believe that's true. It's said that it was very likely just wrapped around him from being in the water. He was only in the water for a few days, and that's likely because he was still inside of Lacey and she was protecting him. A strange thing that a lot of people really, you know, focus on is that there was a piece of electrical tape that was on his ear, pressing it down and leaving a mark. And of course, that sounds really strange, but it's important to know that it was never confirmed that whatever this was material on his ear was electrical tape. In fact, the initial examiner at the scene disregarded what was on his ear as kelp and ended up moving it before his body was officially examined. And of course, that leaves room for more question because some people are saying, oh, it was electrical tape, that's strange. Somebody had to have put that on him. And how could they put that on him if Lacey was still pregnant with him when she died and then put in the water? Clearly, somebody had to have put tape on the baby, you know? But again, it was never verified that it was tape on his ear, although it was also never verified that it was kelp. But the examiner said that it would make sense if it was kelp because there was discoloration on his ear from this material that had been there, and he said that could have been from the iodine in the kelp which seems more likely than electrical tape being put onto his ear. Even if, you know, this is all true that somebody murdered Lacey, somebody other than Scott, and, you know, the baby was born, or that, you know, I don't want to get into graphic details, but that the baby was outside of Lacey at some point with another person, why would they take electrical tape and put it onto the baby's ear? Like, that in itself is bizarre and doesn't really make sense, like, why somebody would think to do that. As far as Lacey's body, I described in part one some things about how her body was found. I'm not going to get back into it again, but just quickly, they only found her partial remains, and a lot of people think that's really strange. How could she be found like that? You know, why were her limbs and head missing? And it is said that it was estimated that her body was submerged in water between three to six months, and the way that she was found would have been consistent with her body being submerged in water for that length of time. So people make a lot out of the way that she was found, but the way that she was found is consistent with being in the water, and there were no marks that they could find on her bones that would say that somebody had cut off her limbs or anything like that. God, this is just so sad and terrible to talk about. So I'm going to move on. I will say I did watch a really good YouTube video about both autopsies. I will put it into the show notes so that way if you're interested in this, you can go and learn more without me having to continue talking about it because honestly, it's it's just so sad. It's so sad for Lacey's family. I can't even imagine that at all. Just, it, you know, she went missing and then she was just found in such a terrible, brutal way and she was pregnant and I don't know, it just, she was so excited to have Connor and for it to end this way is honestly, it's so terrible. 
and for her husband to do this to her, you know, if he did in fact do it, it makes it all the more tragic. According to her family, she was in love with him, and it's just so sad to have a person you love betray you to such a level. So this is going to wrap up part two about Lacey Peterson and Scott Peterson. I would like to know your thoughts. If you have any, please let me know on social media. I know that people have a lot of different thoughts when it comes to this case, so I am curious, but I will be back with part three as soon as I can to talk about the different things that point towards Scott being innocent, and then at the end of that episode, I will share with you where I stand on this whole thing. So thanks so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to Kind of Strange Podcast. Don't forget to follow along on social media at Kind of Strange PC on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. I would love it if you could rate this podcast and leave a review. All sources for this episode are listed on the Kind of Strange website. The link is provided in the show notes. Until next time, don't forget to keep a lookout for anything that might be a little weird, a bit odd, or kind of strange. strange.